So in your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 56 and 57. I think uh, if you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 616. I want to start by just going back to chapter 51, though. I'm going to pick out just a couple select verses to show you what's been happening prior to this episode that we're considering this morning. So if you go back a few pages in whatever Bible you're using to chapter 51, you will find these verses. I'm going to read verses 3 and 4. Good verses, comforting verses. Isaiah chapter 51, verse 3. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. Then in chapter 52, things are still going well. Verse 1, awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. In chapter 53, we see the servant's work. The reason why God, the Lord can make all these wonderful promises is because of the obedience and the sacrifice of his servant's son. So in Isaiah chapter 53, I'm going to read verse 10. Not the most well-known verse of the chapter, but it adequately summarizes what's taken place. 53.10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And then the result of this prospering of of the servant in chapter 54, verse 1. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. uh, Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Skip down to verse 7. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Chapter 55, verse 1. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Verse 6, same chapter. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Chapter 56, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Verse 7. These, and the these refers to these outcasts, the these refers to those that seem like they might be excluded from Jerusalem, that might be excluded from this great redemptive plan of God. These, these eunuchs and these foreigners, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. 
So from chapter 51, 52, 53, 54, 55, 56, the first half of the chapter, it is all this celebration of what the Lord has done in his saving work, in the, in the salvation of the perfect son who offered himself, gave himself, is a sacrifice for sin. It's a celebration of redemption. And then the verses you listen to, it turned dark again. And that's what we're going to consider this morning. But before we do, the one thing that I I completely left off last week because the video projector uh, short-circuited, the old one short-circuited and kind of blew up. And so I did the best I could uh, figuring out what would have been on those slides. And and the one quote that I forgot to give you last week that is such a good quote, I'm going to throw it in now even though it doesn't fit quite as nicely. In chapter 56 and verse 1, when God commissions or charges his church, I call it the church because we're in the New Testament, for them it's God commissions his covenant people. God commissions Israel, redeemed Israel. He commissions them, he charges them in verse 1, keep justice and do righteousness. That's the charge of God's people, redeemed people. We keep justice and we do righteousness, not to gain forgiveness. We keep justice and do righteousness because we're forgiven people. Forgiven people extend the grace and the mercy that they've received from Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, his quote is this, which I didn't share last week. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Christianity is the most worldly of all religions. That's a phenomenal quote because it sounds a little off-putting to think of Christianity as worldly. He doesn't mean worldly in the sense that we look like the world's values, that we're secular, that our interests are divided somehow between our allegiance to God and the, the affairs of this life which are passing away. When he says Christianity is the most worldly of all religions, he's saying Christianity above every other religion of the world has every reason to love our neighbor. More than any other religion. We love our neighbor because Christ has loved us. And Christianity, the church is no expression of Christ's love if we can't love our neighbor. If when we gather together or when we we recognize uh, other churches gather together in the name of Christ celebrating a common salvation by grace through faith, we can appreciate and celebrate differences though for many other reasons we may be different. Though there may be many other ways in which we would divide ourselves, what unites us in Christ is greater than those things. We are a worldly religion, a religion that cares about the world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you're unfamiliar with him, he was part of, he was part of the Lutheran church in Germany. It wound up being known as the Confessing Church under Nazi Germany. He was a dissenter. Uh, He was actually involved in probably a plot to assassin Adolf Hitler. Uh, He wound up being thrown in prison. He wound up losing his life in prison shortly before the prison was liberated. That's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote a lot of really good books, phenomenally good books, uh, especially from that era. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that was his take on what it means to keep justice and do righteousness. So after all that good news, then in chapter 56, verse 9, through chapter 57 and verse 13, we go from where Israel is one day going to be to, and and all this celebration about this 
new Jerusalem and this heavenly Zion and these new values and, and everything being changed for the better, it goes from this wonderful picture back to Isaiah kind of stops and then he looks back around where he's at and he doesn't see a redeemed Zion. He doesn't see much worth celebrating in chapter 56, verse 9 through 57, verse 13. He's not celebrating anymore because what ought to be is not what is at the moment. It's dark. And having listened to it one time, do you have any observations about common themes or phrases or words that you think might be significant because you've seen them played out before in Isaiah? Idolatry. Idolatry is a huge theme in Isaiah, which that's a good point. And this is one reason why I like to do this interaction, because it helps clarify some thinking. Uh, There's a lot of debate as to when Isaiah wrote what he did. I am of the opinion, I would be a conservative in this regard. I think one man named Isaiah wrote this one book. And he wrote this one book, and he wrote about things he was seeing in his own lifetime. He wrote about things that would happen a generation after his lifetime. He wrote about things that would happen centuries after his lifetime, like when Jesus the Messiah dies on a cross, Isaiah 53. He writes about things that haven't happened yet. Because he writes about a new Jerusalem, a heavenly Jerusalem. He writes about a restored creation. That hasn't happened yet to this day. Isaiah includes all those things, but one man wrote it. So this dark picture that we've just listened to a couple moments ago, what is Isaiah referring to particularly? And because idolatry is a theme, it fits with what happened in Isaiah's day. Most people would say, probably in Judah, in Jerusalem, the king is a a king by the name of Manasseh. If you've ever read the book of Kings, if you've ever read the book of Chronicles, you probably know if he's not the worst king in all of Jerusalem, he's, uh, he's arguably the worst king, the King Manasseh. And so this is what is happening in Isaiah's day with Manasseh on the throne and the idolatry that takes place. It's not talking about after the exile. I want to not assume that everybody knows exactly what I'm talking about all the time. Because of the sin and idolatry in Isaiah's day, Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. A Babylonian army came in, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, took any Jew uh, that they considered worthy, uh, educated enough, took those Jews to Babylon, another country. Eventually, 70 years later, those Jews returned to their homeland under the Medo-Persian Empire. But the one thing that that first exile taught them is not to worship idols, at least not the way they did before. In Jesus' day, Jesus doesn't talk about, why do you have an altar to Baal? Why do you have Ashtara poles? Idolatry was was done with once and for all. Isaiah is picturing a scene of a lot of idolatry. That would lead a, a, a careful reader to reach the conclusion, we're talking about a time before the Babylonians came, not after. Idolatry was a problem before, not after. So that's a good point. Cindy, did you have something as well? Uh, Israel's watchmen are blind. blind. That's a theme in all of the prophets. Uh, We'll look at that. 
uh, in a little bit more particularly. That's exactly right. Good. We've got to talk about who those watchmen are. Somebody else have an observation, a theme, a trend, a phrase? Carrie? Call? Come? That's actually a very interesting one as well because in verse 9, you've got come all you beasts of the field. In verse 12, come each one cries, let me get wine. And then in chapter 57 and verse 3, but you come here. Or I think if you're in the uh, English standard, but you draw near. Draw near. So there's, and all of that is in light of, if you go back to chapter 55, you've got this call, come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, he who has no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine. So there's this idea of coming to something, whether it's good or bad, that happens a lot in Isaiah. That happens a lot in Isaiah. Anyone else? Mildred. They forsook the Lord, which is reflected in their idolatry. And, and that's a theme that's definitely picked up. Uh, that drives a lot of the text we're going to look at this morning. They forsook the Lord and why they did it. Anybody else? Okay. Let's start off with the end of chapter 56, verses 9 to 12. The last four verses of chapter 56. There's a lot of imagery there. Um, There are two things that I think stand out as needing our attention. Number one, you've got the beasts in verse 9. You've got beasts of the field, beasts of the forest. I'm not going to make a sharp distinction between those. I think, I mean, beasts of the forest are probably more dangerous. I think that's really just part of the poetic nature of Isaiah to talk about these beasts. And then you've also got the watchmen. The beasts and the watchmen in those last four verses of chapter 56. Uh, What are the beasts in reference to? There are roughly two possibilities. Uh, One is, is he actually summoning wild beasts to come and devour? Is that that a literal possibility? It is. It's a possibility. It would be kind of like in Revelation. At the end of Revelation, at the end of the age as we know it, in the last climatic final battle, I think it's in Revelation chapter 19, an angel calls to the birds of prey and says, Come and eat. Devour the flesh of kings. Devour the flesh of all those who have been slain in battle by Christ in power, coming in power and glory. So it's a similar scene in Revelation. It's possible... It really is a call to wild animals to come and devour flesh. I think it's as likely, probably more likely, that it's a symbolic meaning where a devastation has taken place, judgment has taken place, and it's symbolized by a call to wild animals to come and devour. I don't, I mean, I'm not going to split hairs over it, and I'm not going to try to start a new denomination over it if you disagree with me. But uh, I think it's probably just a way to communicate judgment has taken place. I think it's also within the realm of possibility that those animals aren't even real animals that are coming to devour those that have been slain in battle. It's possible those animals are representative of the Gentile nations who are being invited to come and devour Israel. If you think about it, if you're familiar with the the prophetic book of Daniel... In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel had a vision of four beasts 
that came up out of the sea. And those four beasts represented four Gentile world powers that would devastate the land of Israel and devastate and trample down Jerusalem. The first empire was the Babylonian Empire. The second empire, pictured by a wild beast, was the Medo-Persian Empire. The third beast was uh, the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great. And the fourth beast was the Roman Empire. But all of those Gentile world powers were pictured as animals, as beasts. And so a possibility is the Gentiles are being invited to come and devastate the Lord's people because of the sin and disobedience and the idolatry that's taking place. The second thing regarding the watchmen, who were the watchmen? I want you to turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah, which is just a few pages forward after Isaiah is the book of Jeremiah. I'm reading Jeremiah in my own working through whatever part of the Bible I'm working through, and I read these verses and they stood out to me. So go to Jeremiah chapter 5. I think you have another picture of the watchman. This is like old school. Without a video projector, this is old school, because before I could always throw this stuff up on the screen... Back in the day, back when I first ever started teaching in any kind of a setting or preaching in any kind of a setting, it was before video, uh, video projectors. Once in a while, you might pull out an overhead if you thought it would help, but that was kind of clumsy and cumbersome. But most of the time, you just had to tell people to turn in their Bibles to different passages, and you'd hear all the ruffling of pages. And now, uh, that just doesn't happen anymore. It's kind of a sad thought, but at any rate, Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 30. Last two verses of Jeremiah. Jeremiah puts it this way. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? Those are Israel's watchmen. You've got prophets and priests... The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests are only too happy to get along and cooperate with this. And it doesn't do Israel any good. Go over to Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 13. Jeremiah 6, verse 13. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From the prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. And then in verses 16 and 17, the Lord responds, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk in it. I set watchmen over you, saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not pay attention. What's happening in Jeremiah is also what's happening in Isaiah. So in Isaiah, back in chapter 56, the Lord sets uh, or has these watchmen, and they're described three ways. Number one, they're blind. It's kind of like the number one qualification if you're a watchman. Like, uh, there's a lot of job opportunities right now. If we still had a category of job opportunity where you could apply to be a watchman and you got a sign-on bonus and you made so much per hour, probably the first qualification would be, can you see? Because 
If you can't see, you're probably disqualified to be a watchman. And in this particular case, Israel's watchmen lack the one necessary qualification that's required of a watchman, and that is to be able to see. And they don't. Secondly, they're described as silent dogs. So a watchdog, its job is to watch for harm. But these watchdogs, these these leaders of Israel who were to sound the alarm are like silent dogs. Uh, when my kids were little, we really only, there's only one dog they remember. We had one earlier dog that didn't work out. Uh, she died because of health complications pretty early. But uh, the kids grew up with one dog. It was Molly. Molly was a great dog. She was a mutt. She looked like a German shepherd, but she was way too small. So she was half German shepherd and half something else. A super smart dog, but Sarah could never get her to, to get the paper That was the one thing. I think she just didn't want to do it because I can't believe she wasn't smart enough to do it. Uh, We'd let her out the front door when we moved to the city. She hated the city, by the way. We lived in the country prior to that. She loved being in the country and and roaming and chasing and the the pasture would grow up and you'd see her hopping, you know, through the pasture chasing rabbits or whatever. And and once in a while she'd go over to some neighbors a quarter mile away or two-tenths of a mile away and get in their chickens, which wasn't so good. But at any rate, the point is this, Molly was not a good watchdog, unless you wanted to know when the burglar left. Like when somebody came, she was only too happy to see them. But when somebody left, and it didn't make any difference whether it was friend, family, whoever, when anybody left, she went ballistic. You knew somebody had just left because that was her thing. But if we got Molly to be a watchdog, she was kind of a failure because if somebody has just robbed you, it's kind of too late to know that. Uh, so she was a failure. So Israel's watchmen were silent dogs. They were also, they're described as basically being lazy and fat, which is Sarah's dog, Elsa. Uh, Elsa's just a lazy, this is a dog that she did not experience puppyhood. She was born old. And she, the only time she ex, she acts like, she has any life in her at all is at wintertime. She does like winter, and she likes snow. And she's kind of a little bit different dog then. But most of the time, she's just a lazy dog. She sleeps, and she would be happy to eat. But that's about it. Uh, Israel's watchmen are blind, and they're like these dogs that are really not good for anything. And then the third description they're given is that they're shepherds without understanding. They're self-indulgent. Shepherds in the Old Testament in particular has less to do with, in the New Testament, sometimes people think of pastors as being shepherds because pastors are called that. But in the Old Testament, a shepherd was a king, probably. Kings were regarded as Israel's shepherds. They are to guide the people. But these shepherds in the Old Testament in Isaiah's day were foolish shepherds. They lacked understanding. They were only in it for themselves. They were kind of like the rich fool, where they only wanted to heap up wealth for themselves. They wanted the good life. They wanted to experience eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you will... Well, actually, they didn't talk about tomorrow you will die. They said tomorrow will be like this day. It might even be better. As if they had any control over tomorrow. It's a fool who thinks that they can celebrate today, and tomorrow's going to be the same way, because that's how life works. We are never given hope of tomorrow. 
I'm not given hope of the rest of the day. You're not given hope of tomorrow. The Bible's message is loud and clear. You don't have that hope. These shepherds are living as if now is all that matters and tomorrow will be a duplicate of today. And they're wrong. And they don't trust or believe in God's promises because all the way back in chapter 43, if you were to skip back to Isaiah 43 and verses 18 and 19, the Lord tells his people, chapter 43, verse 18, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The Lord promises his people it's not always going to be as it is, as it is right now. I'm going to do a new thing. This new plan of redemption, of restoration, of making all things new. But Israel's shepherds aren't interested. They're only interested in the next drink for today. They're only interested in lining their pockets for today. They don't believe judgment's ever coming. They don't believe there's ever going to be a new day. And they couldn't be more wrong. It's easy to take what we're reading in this dark passage and immediately apply it to the United States of America. Uh, Or easy to apply it to uh, the cultural church in America where you've got leaders both in political realm, in the religious realm, where nobody's sounding the alarm. They're like blind watchmen. They're like lazy dogs. And nobody wants to say what the truth is. And we pretend like there really isn't a problem when there is. And and what I'm reading about in Isaiah from 2,600 years ago is some of the same stuff that happens in our culture, in our church, not hopefully our church in particular, but in the American church where oftentimes compromises are made and the truth of God really isn't being proclaimed. And we don't really believe God can do a new thing, that the church's best hope of existence is to strike up compromises with the world and make peace with the world so that we are in a safe place. I don't believe Christ has ever called the church to make compromises or to duplicate what the world does. We're to stand out as ambassadors of another world. We're to stand out as people who believe that God does new things. My life is to be a testimony of of something new that God can create out of something very old and something broken. The church as a community is meant to reflect that, to image that to a world that is in, in darkness like in Isaiah's day when Israel was in darkness. Now let's go to chapter 57. In chapter 57, we go from Israel's watchmen to a statement about the righteous. It reads, chapter 57, verse 1. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. So is it a good or a bad thing that the righteous man perishes? Good or bad? It's good for them? He's taken away from calamity. So the righteous man perishes, 
But the Lord is taking him away or taking her away, taking them out of a situation that the devastation and the calamity uh, would be so oppressive, it would be so bad that it's a, it's a mercy they're being removed. I don't know if you've ever heard, you know, sometimes preachers or commentators speculate about Moses. Moses didn't enter the promised land. He, his last 40 years, he worked to get in the promised land. He was, obe- he was the servant of the Lord who was charged with taking Israel into the promised land. But because of an act of disobedience on Moses' part, he didn't actually enter. The Lord showed Moses from a mountain the promised land, and I think it was almost visionary all that he saw, because I think he he seemed to get this this, uh, panoramic view of the good land flowing with milk and honey. But he didn't enter. And Moses pleaded to enter. And the Lord said no. In fact, the Lord more or less told him to I'm done talking about it. You're not entering the promised land. And Moses died short of actually entering the promised land. Was that good or bad? It's often speculated it was a good thing. That it was God's mercy that Moses not be allowed to enter the promised land. Because if he had entered, he would have found out it was a lot of the same old Israel. It was a lot of the same old stubborn hearts. And so it was a mercy that he was spared from going into the promised land and having to deal with that and see the waywardness of the Hebrew people. Um, So in this case, the righteous are spared. The righteous are taken away from calamity. And it it says uh, no one lays it to heart. It's like nobody cares. Um, There's kind of a principle in here as well where often there are notable examples in Scripture that before judgment falls, the righteous are taken out. Uh, Before God destroyed mankind, the earth, with a flood in the early chapters of Genesis, uh, he waited as Noah built an ark that would sustain himself and his family, eight members in the family, and two of every kind. Unless it was a, a certain type of animal, some of which would be sacrificed, they took five of every kind. But all that was prepared before judgment fell. So the, the righteous were spared judgment. Judgment wouldn't fall until the righteous were adequately in a safe place. Before God's judgment fell on two cities called Sodom and Gomorrah, an angel was sent to pull out Lot and his family. Now, you know Lot's wife turned back and she was turned to a pillar of stone. But before judgment fell, and it was very explicit, judgment would not fall until these righteous were taken out. Before judgment fell, Lot and his family, Lot and his wife and his two daughters were taken out of the city. And then judgment fell. Now, I was raised a certain way to believe about the end of the world as we know it. Uh, and, and there's some merit. and then there's a, It's a legitimate view where uh, there's some that believe that before God's judgment falls on the age in which we know it, Christ is going to rapture his church out of the world. And then judgment will fall. That does fit this pattern. Uh, I can't say that I'm completely comfortable with that. But if it happens that way, I've always said I'm, I'm going to go with it. You know, even though I, I may not expect it like that exactly, a, a pre-tribulational rapture, if it happens, I get to go too. Uh, and that would fit this pattern. Before judgment falls, the righteous are preserved. In this case, the righteous are preserved in that they perish but they're in, a, they're in a safe place. They're in, it says, uh, he enters into peace. 
They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. Look at the uh, last verse of chapter 57. The last verse says, There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Which we've read about in Isaiah before. There's peace for the righteous, even though they may perish physically, but there is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. The interesting thing is, too, in those first, uh, first two verses of chapter 57, when it says nobody lays it to heart, I would suppose I always took that like they don't care. The world doesn't care that the righteous perish. The world doesn't care whether our church gathers on a Sunday. The world doesn't care about our opinion. The world doesn't care what we say the Bible teaches. They don't care. And if we perish, if we're gone, if, we were, you know, if they decide to destroy the building, make it hard on churches, make it hard on Christians, they don't care. But it's actually a lot more than that. That's not actually even the main meaning of those first two verses. When it says, the righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart... When it says devout men are taken away while no one understands, what they don't understand is that this means judgment is going to fall on them imminently because God is sparing his people before judgment falls. That's what they're not understanding. It's not just that they don't care whether we exist. What they're not understanding is that the removal of the righteous means the boom is about to fall on them. That's what they don't understand. I think that's a completely different take. But I think that's exactly what it means to say in those first two verses. Then you have verse 3. But you. So now we're transitioning from the righteous man to everybody else in Israel. But you draw near or come here. And then he describes them sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Uh, Enough about the righteous, now you guys. It's kind of like, I don't know if you've read the book of Job. It's a fascinating tale, poetic tale, though I think it was a real incident, but it's told in a poetic way. At the end of Job, you're familiar with Job in that Job kind of had an ongoing uh, back and forth with three friends who kept trying to correct him, kept trying to tell him, Job, if you would just fess up to God and admit this is all your fault, it's all you're doing, God would, he would relent. And at the end of the book of Job, when the Lord confronts Job, because Job, Job wasn't entirely right, though he was more right than his three friends. So the Lord corrects Job, and then, and then the Lord turns and says, now about you three, come here, those three friends. It's in, it's in Job, I don't know that I wrote down the verse, um, It's in Job chapter 42 and verse 7. Then the Lord basically says, now you three, you better ask Job to pray for you. (laughs) Like when God calls you on the carpet, that's kind of what's happening here. But you, not the righteous, but you draw near. Come here. And he calls them sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. And then there are two questions that drive the rest of chapter 57 through verse, uh, those first 13 verses. Two questions drive what's taking place. Question number one is in verse four, whom are you mocking? Question number two is in verse 11, whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? Who are you mocking and who do you fear? 
Those two questions. Great questions. Uh, Let's deal with the first question. When he says, who are you mocking, is explained a little bit further in what immediately follows. Some follow-up questions. Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit, you who burn with lust under the, among the oaks, under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys, under the clefts of the rocks? Who are they mocking? Let's answer the question. Who are they mocking? Who are they mocking? That's the question. Who are they mocking? Who do they think they're mocking? Or who are they mocking? Anybody want to venture a guess? Could be they're mocking the righteous. I think that would that would fit with the immediate context. It would also fit with uh, what we've seen in Old Testament narrative history that they mock the righteous. Uh, But in fact, the answer to the question, I mean, that's who they think they're mocking. The Lord's answer answer to the question is, the only one you're mocking is yourself. It's not clear the way it's rendered in the English Standard Version. The Holman Christian Standard Bible makes it a little clearer. and And so far as I can tell, most scholars would agree with this opinion. It's just kind of unclear the way it's written. So the Holman Christian Standard reads this way. Verse 4, who is it you are mocking? Who is it you are opening your mouth and sticking out your tongue at? Isn't it you, you rebellious people, you race of liars? The only person you're mocking is yourself. You're not mocking God. God will not be mocked. As a man sows, he shall also reap. He isn't mocked. God doesn't make threats that fall on the ground that never take place. You don't mock God. If you're going to mock God, the only one you're mocking is yourself. It's kind of like we have a proverb in American culture, or I don't know where it derived from originally, but he who laughs last, laughs best, something like that. The only one you're mocking is yourself, because this is going to fall on you. That's another story from Job, where I think it's Elihu, which is a fourth individual in Job, who says good things. He's not like the three friends. But Elihu says, when you sin, like that doesn't, that doesn't tarnish God's reputation. When we sin, we aren't tarnishing God's reputation. God is no less God when we walk in paths of disobedience. When I choose to walk a path of disobedience, the only one I hurt is myself and the people around me. But I haven't tarnished God's character I haven't somehow diminished his power and his glory. When I sin, I hurt myself and the people around me. That's Job. That's Isaiah. That's also the prophets. Uh, It would be a story like, uh, probably the ultimate story would be Jesus. When Jesus was on a cross, there were those that ridiculed him on the cross. They mocked him on the cross. You who can save the world, save yourself and come down from the cross and we'll believe. They mocked. But the only person they're really mocking is themselves because he rose from the grave on the third day. And he's coming back in power and glory to reward the righteous and to judge the wicked. He is vindicated in the last, both on the third day and ultimately. When we mock and laugh against God and his word, the only people we're hurting is ourselves, not God. He is not mocked. All right, the Lord, well, let's see, I'm running out of time here. Um, 
In verses 5 to 8, there are two interrelated sins. Those two interrelated sins in verses 5 and 8, you've heard them read once, but these interrelated sins are idolatry and adultery. Idolatry and adultery. Those are interrelated for good reason. Idolatry is adultery. They're not two separate sins. You are an idolatrous people. You worship idols. Oh, and another thing, you also commit adultery. Idolatry is adultery in the Bible. It's equated. It's synonymous. It's the same thing. Because idolatry is worshiping another God in addition to the God that you've entered into covenant with. Idolatry and adultery is when I say Christ is my Lord and Savior and then I live as if there's some other priority of life that's going to dictate what I do that day. That's adultery against God because my allegiance is to be to Him. I've entered into covenant with Him. If you were here at 10 o'clock, we celebrated the Lord's Supper. This is the new covenant of His blood. I'm in covenant with the living God who takes away sin and now I'm going to do what I want? That's adultery. That's idolatry. And if you think along these categories and you realize idolatry and adultery, they're the same thing in Scripture, or they're interrelated in many contexts in Scripture, if you recognize that, then it makes sense that in Revelation, uh, at the end of the age, when judgment is falling, and there's 144,000 among the tribes of Israel who are preserved, who are pure, who are righteous, and... I probably should read the text, and I, I don't have it in my notes, so I'm going to read it to you out of, the, out of Revelation. Revelation 14. Last book of the Bible. You can listen to me, or if you're quick, you can turn there. It reads like this. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood a lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I take that number as representative. I don't think there were 144,000 plus none or minus none. I think that is a whole number of God's redeemed people. I think particularly among Israel. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Now, about these 144,000, here's the description. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and for the Lamb. When it describes them as not being defiled, when it describes them as being virgins, it's not really talking about sexuality. It's talking about idolatry. There's nothing wrong with marriage. What it's talking about is people who have remained devoted and chaste before the God in whom, uh, whom, whom they worship and serve and have been redeemed by. They're loyal to God. They're chaste. They're pure. That's what it's talking about. All right, back to Isaiah. So you've got these two themes of idolatry and adultery. Um, oh, let me see. Let me, uh, let me skip down to verse 10. Here's the result of their unfaithfulness to their covenant-keeping God. 
In verse 10 it reads, You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. What it's picturing there is you get just enough satisfaction out of your sin that it keeps you in your sin. You're not willing to forsake your sin. You're not willing to turn from your sin. You're not willing to repent from your sin. You get just enough satisfaction, even though it's wearying you, even though it's grinding you down and destroying you, you get just enough out of it to not turn away from it. And you never receive peace. That's the picture in verse 10. You're not faint. You're not faint. You're not willing to give it up. It's kind of like if you want to apply it to American culture. In American culture, it's pretty easy to recognize we have problems in a lot of ways. In society, in criminal justice, in, uh, in morality, in ethics. I don't think anybody would say we are a culture and a country without problems. We have lots of problems. We also have plenty of solutions, plenty of remedies. But the one remedy that we're not allowed to talk about is the remedy that God gives. And Cindy works in the public school system. They have lots of remedies for lots of problems. But one remedy that they will not address are at a fundamental level of a breakdown of the family in our culture, which the Bible has a lot to say about what a family is. And how a nation, on some level, is only as strong as the family unit. But we're not allowed to talk about that. Because that's imposing a value on our culture and society that is European or whatever else the case may be. But the truth of the matter is, the Bible does have solutions to real problems. Real problems. But the world's not interested in those. They would rather pour more money into another program to try to make it a little bit better than what it was yesterday, it will never solve the problem. Because the ultimate problem isn't what we do, it's who we are. And we can think for all the world, if we change society enough, people will only do the right thing, and we will find out, just like every culture has ever found out, we're wrong. I don't care what society looks like. I don't care what economic system you have. I don't care who's in power. It's not going to change the heart of sinners. That's the problem. And the church needs to address that first of all. Now, verse 11, Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you do not fear me? This is, uh, I wish... um, I'm completely out of time, which is kind of interesting. I don't know. I'm learning to do without video projector. and I've got more words than what I thought I had. But at any rate, you've got this second question. And they don't remember. It seems that they don't remember God. And they don't fear God. And he's not the driving force in their life. Because you know what? God's been kind of quiet. God's kept silent. And there's a passage in Ecclesiastes Kind of, in some sense, it's my favorite book of the Bible. But Ecclesiastes says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. In other words, because God, the Lord, does not immediately punish wrongdoing, people think, I think I can get away with that. I don't think God cares. I think God is distant. He's uncaring. He's busy. Uh... God's turned his back on us, whatever the case may be. 
Because judgment doesn't fall immediately, people's hearts are fully set to do what they want to do, irrespective of what God says. And that seems to be the problem in verse 11. Um, So, verse 12, God answers this silence, and God says he gives them what they want in verse 12. You think I've held my peace, and I have. So in verse 12, okay, I will declare your righteousness and your deeds but they will not profit you. You want me to give an assessment? You want me to speak up? You want me to tell you what I see? I'll speak up and I'll I'll talk about your righteousness. Guess what? It's not going to be to your benefit. We're going to find out a little bit later in Isaiah when the Lord assesses their righteous deeds, the Lord will say, I'll tell you what your righteous deeds are like. They're like filthy rags, which is a pretty toned down version of what he says. They're like filthy rags. That's your righteousness. You want me to speak up? You want me to address your situation? Here's what it looks like. It's not what you think it is. But it's still, all of this ends. He leaves them to their own devices in verse 13. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. That's where your hope was. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. The Lord will not forsake his people. The church, because we are in 2021, the church, we find ourselves in that last part of verse 13. I don't care what happened. I do care. At the end of the day, it doesn't make any difference what happens in our country or in the world. The Lord will not forsake his people. The righteous will inherit all the promises Christ gave to the church. We will. Because God is still on the throne. He has never not been on the throne. The righteous will be rewarded. The wicked will be punished. So why don't we live like it? Why don't we testify that God is a God who does new things? And it starts with us. What are your additional comments and questions? Carrie. Yes, in that particular text, text is talking about the Israel, Israel's watchmen, the prophets and the priests. Because they're not declaring what God says is actually true and happening. Like in, in Jeremiah's day or in Isaiah's day, Isaiah and Jeremiah are saying, because of your idolatry, because of your adultery, because of your sin, the Lord's judgment is coming. And then you've got the watchman saying, oh no, the Lord's got a mess. The Lord is speaking a message through me. It's all good. Peace, peace. Uh, it's standing up in a church and saying, peace be upon you. Go live your own life. Go identify however you choose to identify. As long as you're true yourself. God's peace is on you. God loves us one and all. That's a watchman who's forsaken his duty. Because there is no peace for the wicked. There's peace for those who have repented and and received the forgiveness of sins in Christ. And my sin may be different from your sin or somebody else's sin, but sin must be repented of. So in their day, they had a message of judgment and repentance that they weren't preaching. They were saying, it's all good. God's going to take care of us. God loves us. We're his chosen people. We're all God's children. That's a message that doesn't deliver. Somebody else? This is how the Bible is so incredibly relevant. Uh, Isaiah could have been written like, in such a time as this, what, do, what, should we, what should we tell God's people? You could come up with something out of Isaiah. 
and this is 2,600 years old. And it's written for today because people don't change. The sin nature doesn't change. God's salvation doesn't change. This is the triumph of what only God can do. Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.